Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 7. My initial intent was to go through the entirety of this chapter today. You can thank me later that I'm not going to do that. It would make for a very, very long session together. But we're looking now at this next major juncture as we are examining Noah's family. And we've learned some about Noah's family. The scriptures really don't tell us a ton about his life, his upbringing. We do know that he lived in a time of unprecedented evil and wickedness in the world. We know that Noah stood alone and one who was righteous and blameless and walked with God. He was apart from everything else was taking place in the world that he lived in. And as Noah faithfully lived out his life before the Lord, God speaks to him and speaks in what is recorded as two speeches. And we're not calling them speeches per se, but we're looking at the different Segments of the announcements that God makes to Noah. And his first announcement comes to Noah and he says, the end of all life has come before me. And I can only imagine what Noah's response would have been to such a declaration. And he therefore instructs Noah to build an ark. This ark is a massive rectangle that is designed to float to withstand the floodwaters, to preserve life of Noah and his family and all of the animal kingdom that would march onto the ark. He then says, I'm going to bring a flood and it's going to be the end of all flesh. It will wipe everything out. The entirety of the world will be underneath water, but I will make a covenant with you. And I will make this covenant with you because you are a righteous man. Then he gives the second part of the instruction, and that is a rescue mission to save the animal world. And while Noah doesn't have to go out and find these animals, God will orchestrate the circumstances by which these animals will bring themselves to the ark and board as God has instructed them to do so. I don't know how God can do that, but He can. He created them. He can certainly speak to them, and they can certainly respond to what it is He tells them to do. And then He says that a new world would come through Noah at the end of this flood. And so when Noah is told this unprecedented announcement, he very simply obeys and does what God has told him to do. At this point, chapter 6 ends... There is a 120-year interval between the proclamation that God makes about the end of all flesh and the instruction to Noah to build the ark. And so this 120-year interval is absolutely necessary to build this massive structure. This ark is a massive box. It has no rudder. It has no oars. It has no sails. It has no captain. It has no destination. It is simply going to float upon the water for approximately a year's time, and it will provide life to those that are aboard it. Now, we looked at some pictures last week of this replica that was built at the Creation Museum in Kentucky. And while this cannot be an exact replica, it fits the basic frame size that is given to us in Scripture, its length, its width, and its height. We learned last week that this boat that was built is the perfect six-to-one ratio that modern engineers use today to build large vessels. So for every foot of length, you need to have a foot of width. 
And that is exactly what Noah's Ark fits into, that mold of a 6 to 1 ratio. Now I learned, and I think I may have mentioned this to Greg afterwards, I don't think I told you this in the service. If I did, you probably forgot because I didn't remember, remember telling you. The replica that was built in Kentucky took 3.1 million board feet. Now, unless you're a mill worker, you don't really understand what a board foot is. So a board foot is 12 by 12 by 1. It took 3.1 million board feet to build that replica. So to give you an idea of the size of this project, a full mature pine tree that is 80 feet tall and 2 feet in diameter would produce approximately 750 board feet. If you assume the replica required 10% more than the original art based upon creative freedom and not knowing how many rooms were built and the sizes of the rooms and how they were separated, if you just assume that there's a 10% overage in the replica that was built, that would still mean that the original would require 2.8 million board feet. That would require 3,780 foot tall, two foot diameter pine trees to be chopped down, to be sawn into usable planks, usable width, usable length. Then it would have to be Fastened, then it would have to be covered inside and out with pitch, a waterproof material. We have no idea how many people helped Noah and the three boys build this boat, whether they did it on their own or where others helped them. But it took every bit of the 120 years between the proclamation and its completion. So we're not told about the project. We're not told about its progress, its challenges, its obstacles, none of that. All we know is that the world had never seen a boat this big and it would not see a boat this big until late into the 1800s, the 19th century, that a boat would be built that was larger than the dimensions given to us in the book of Genesis. So in chapter 7, the ark has been completed. 120 years has passed, and it's time now for Noah and his cargo to get ready to board the ark. So we're going to look together again at Genesis 7, verses 1 through 5. And God speaks again to Noah after this 120-year interval. We don't know what kind of communication may have taken place in this interval. We can only go by what we are told in the Scripture. So here's what God's Word says to us today in Genesis 7, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord spoke to Noah, Enter the ark, you and, your, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean too, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord God commanded him. So as God speaks again and gives to Noah this next set of instruction, this second address brings us to the third announcement in the sequence of speeches, and it contains three different elements that we're going to look at today. So verse 1, the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. So the announcement is very simply, board the ark. Now if you've been a 
a dutiful student and read ahead, you'll know that these next verses after 5, 6 through the end of the chapter is divided into two sections and there's quite a bit of repetition that goes on in those sections and we'll break those down in greater detail. But it's time to board the ark. So Noah's instructed to get you and your family and board the ark. So the reason that Noah and his family have this divine privilege of boarding the ark is restated for us in that he alone is righteous. So thinking about the message that Noah was given, the end of all flesh is before me, build this massive boat, something that the world has never seen and would not see for some 5,000 years, build that boat. During this period, Noah's righteousness has been maintained. He's not wavered, he has not faltered, he has not rebelled, he has not said, but God, but wait, I can't, I won't, I don't. None of that has taken place. God still finds Noah to be righteous and therefore has been selected by God to board the ark. The conduct of Noah is above and beyond the rest of humanity. And while he is not without sin, he is free from the evil and the wickedness that characterizes every single person who is a part of civilization at this time. As we think about what was told to us earlier in this section, every thought of man's heart was only evil continually, and that man had corrupted the earth and filled it with violence, and only Noah is free from this defilement. So Noah's righteousness is rooted in who he believes God to be. That is the beginning of our righteous conduct, who we believe God to be. Because after all, if God is something that we have created in our own mind, then our behavior is going to flow from the God that we have created. So if we make God out to be something, then that means we can do this and we can do that and we don't have to do this, we don't have to go there, we're able to go there, we can do whatever we want to do. But Noah's righteousness is rooted in who he believes God to be, his faith in the person of God, and this faith has created a radically different lifestyle from the rest of Noah's world. That same thing ought to be true for us today. Our belief, the deep-seated belief that we have in the person of God ought to define the lives that we live. And it should be radically different from the lives of those around us. Even within the church, with those who have called God their Father and called those that participate in worship brother and sister, there can be an incredibly wide variation between the acceptable and the despicable conduct that can be found in the lives of those who call God Father. Our lives ought to be radically different from the rest of the world. It's rooted in who we believe God to be. So even though Noah has heard from God that the end of all civilization is before me, Noah continues in his faith in the person of God, believing in the righteous work of God that was going to come. So as the end of civilization looms, God makes a covenant with Noah to save him from the flood and humanity will be restored through the line of Noah. That's a pretty significant 
burden to bear, if you will. Imagine that message coming to you, that I'm going to blot out all of the world, and you alone are going to be the rest of what humanity will flow through. Wow. But this is Noah's life. So Noah is told to get ready to board the ark. Secondly, to bring the animals. Verse 2 and 3. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Now what is really interesting here is that the animal kingdom is not defined by the previously used categories, which were cattle, beasts of the field, and then the creeping and crawling things. Instead, the animal kingdom is now identified by the dietary habits of the people of Moses' day. They are identified as either clean or unclean. Now, what that means is not defined for us here, but the implication is that these designations would later be the same as what Moses communicates regarding the dietary law for the Israelites, which was going to be radically different from the rest of the world. What is sometimes overlooked in this narrative is that here we find God instructing Noah to bring seven pairs of the clean animals and only one pair, two animal, two animals of the unclean variety. So when Noah and his family disembark from the ark in a year's time, and a sacrificial system will be instituted, animals will be required. So thinking about this, if there were only two of the clean animal that would be a part of the sacrificial system, then they would be extinct immediately upon disembarking the ark. So this is preparation for the eventual sacrificial system that is going to come post-floodwater recession, and it would also provide plentiful food for the Israelites as they are um, call them Israelites. They're not necessarily going to be called Israelites until Moses' day, but the um, the informal Israelites, the people that would flow from Noah's three sons, these people would now eat animals and they would be of the clean variety. And it is widely believed that pre-flood, mankind for the most part was vegetarian. Now we can't say that that's for sure and therefore you should be We aren't told of what animals were killed, but because of the wickedness and the evilness of man, if that was an instruction to only eat of the vegetation of the world, it was likely disregarded since sin was so pervasive within the world. But seven pairs of clean animals designed to be able to to satisfy the sacrificial system and also to provide food beyond the initial means of sacrifice that would give food to the uh, people who would come from Noah's family. So this system, this sacrificial system, will be fully developed in the days of Moses, but it is inaugurated upon Noah's establishment as father of the new world, but we aren't given any details about that. Now, thinking about what we learned way back in Genesis, Cain and Abel, 
There was some kind of a sacrificial system that was used then because both Cain and Abel brought an offering to the Lord. We don't have any detail of what the requirements were, how often they were brought, but it is basically understood that there was some kind of rudimentary sacrificial system that was used back in the days of Cain and Abel. But what we understand to be the sacrificial system of the Israelites would be fully devoted fully developed from Moses, and because Moses is very likely writing this during the wilderness wanderings, that has already been communicated, and would make perfect sense to the Israelites that are hearing about the clean and the unclean animals and how that fits into their world in that time. So seven pairs of animals would allow for the sacrifice, it would also provide plentiful food and rapid reproduction, and so Moses is told to board the ark to bring the animals because the flood is coming. Verse 4, for after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. So Noah's family and the animals will be on board for seven days before the rain comes. And as you read through the last part of Genesis 7, it's overlapping information that provides more detail and it seems like there's a boarding and then there's a pausing and then there's differences in the account but it's detail that adds to the significance of this event as it builds up to the crescendo of the flood actually coming the waters receding and then new life beginning at the end of the flood account so Noah's family and the animals will be on board for seven days before the rain comes, and when the rain comes, it's going to really, really come. The reason for the seven-day delay is not given to us here, but it has been suggested that this would do a couple of things. One, it would provide a time of mourning for those that would be lost. Think about this. While Noah and his children and their wives would come on board, There would be many, many, many other extended family members that would not be coming on board. The entirety of the animal kingdom that breathes air would be wiped out. And so it's believed that this was, although not defined, probably a time for mourning. But the other part of this is that when it starts to rain, the rain is going to come so hard and so fast that boarding would not be possible. So I did some research, and although I can't say this is exactly what happened, we're told in Scripture that rain is going to come for 40 days and 40 nights, a torrential downfall that will cover the globe in water, taking the earth back to its pre-water-separated state, After God created the heavens and the earth and His Spirit hovered amongst us and created light, the earth was covered in water. Day two, He separated the water from the water, creating the atmosphere. But the amount of rain that is going to fall, that is required to flood the globe, as we will see later, to within 25 feet of the highest mountaintop, it's been estimated, think of this, it's been estimated that the water contained in an Olympic-sized swimming pool which is approximately 500,000 gallons of water, would fall on every square meter of the earth every minute. (laughs) So it isn't raining cats and dogs, it's raining Olympic-sized swimming pools. 
I mean, can you imagine that kind of a rain? It is coming down so hard that I doubt you could actually see individual raindrops. It would be like a massive Niagara Fall rainstorm coming and hitting every square meter of the earth, dumping 500,000 gallons of water every single minute. God says, I take full responsibility for the flood. I will blot out from the face of the earth everything. It's not a natural disaster. It's not a pantheon of little g-gods that big g-god is dealing with. This is God saying, I will blot out from the face of the earth everything. God's holiness will not be compromised. His sovereign rule is unmatched. And He will do with His world what He determines to do because it is His. It is His prerogative. Now, I'll say this. God took no pleasure in deconstructing or in uncorrupting the world that He had made. Took no pleasure in that. But in the fullness of His person, He determined it was necessary and that it was right. Now, although many have questioned this act, this flood, it is going to wipe out everything with the exception of what is on board of the ark. There are many that doubt its accuracy. They lament its cruelty. They even offer up this elevated position that defies the action of God in doing such a thing. When we reduce the flood to something that is subjected to what we can understand or explain or make sense of or find a way to compartmentalize in our lives, we very, very likely will reduce the holiness and the sovereignty of God to something we make and not to something that it actually is. Consider these verses that we're going to read together. Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, excuse me, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When Job challenged God's will in the midst of his difficulty, Job challenged God. And God replied very simply, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, who are you to question my wisdom and my ways? Now, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, you instruct me, is what God says. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it? 
On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who enclosed the sea with doors, when bursting forth it went out from the womb, when I made a cloud its garment and its thickness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here you shall Proud wa- here your proud waves will stop. Tell me, Joe, where were you when all of that was decided? Tell me where you were when all of that was calculated and figured out. If you go on and read the rest of Job 38 and the majority of 39, God continues to challenge Job in his own understanding and in his own wisdom as a comparison and a contrast to God's. Well, the Bible very clearly declares the attributes of God. And even these descriptions that we read cannot fully explain to us, nor enable us to fully understand the fullness of God. If I were to ask you, tell me, how bright is the sun? Well, gee, I don't know, it's so bright I can't even look at it. Yeah. How hot is the sun? Well, scientists can give estimations of how hot they really think it could be, but they really can't say with exact precision. And that, in a very, very crude way, is a very crude way for us of trying to understand some analogy and how other God is than what we can think or understand. God is infinite. He is self-existent and without beginning. God is immutable. He never changes. God is self-sufficient. He has no needs. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God is omnipresent. He is always everywhere. God is wise. He is full of perfect, unchanging wisdom. God is faithful. He is infinitely, unchangingly true. God is good. He is infinitely, unchangingly kind and full of goodwill. God is just. He is infinitely, unchangeably right and perfect in all He does. God is merciful. He is infinitely, unchangeably compassionate and kind. God is gracious. God is infinitely inclined to spare the guilty. God is loving. God infinitely, unchangingly loves us. God is holy. He is infinitely, unchangingly perfect. God is glorious. He is infinitely beautiful and great. Tell me, how do you describe infinity? How do you describe infinite beauty, infinite worth, infinite power, infinite majesty? How do you describe those things in such a way that you can say, ah, I get it now, I understand it completely? It's impossible. And yet this is the God that set in motion what man believes to be an unkind and unjust act. Here's some more of what the Bible declares about God in Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality 
nor take a bribe. First Chronicles 29, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and You exalt Yourself as head over all. The Bible goes on to, dis- to describe Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This is the God who created. This is the God who uncorrupted. This is the God who came to the world He created to die in our place, to save us from our sin, because God loved. You know, we could go on and on and on, but the picture is very, very clear. God is entitled to do whatever He wants, and man has no right to challenge or rebuke God for what He does in His sovereign, gracious rule. Now, Noah understands this. Even with what appears to us to be incredibly limited revelation. And so having been given this unimaginable announcement that the end of all life is going to come and that He is going to build, a, build an ark and through Him humanity will be, will be restored, Noah simply obeys. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we read God's Word and we're confronted with some pretty difficult teaching, aren't we? And we say, yeah, but God, you you don't understand. Oh, yeah, He does. But God, that's so hard. My power is sufficient. The truth is, God, I really don't want to do that. I have decided, I have determined that I don't have to do that. And what we really do, whether we acknowledge it or not, is we stand in our pre-converted state and we say, I'm going to do what I want to do, God. Who are you to tell me that I can't, that I won't, or that I have to? It's amazing to me that God loves us at all, let alone that He loves us completely and perfectly and eternally. God's love is infinite. It is incalculable. And yet He loves. And because He loves, He gave. And He gave His Son... And in doing so, He gave to us an eternity with Him. Where, in a sense, we can look at the sun in its brightness. We can get up close to its 
searing heat and rest joyously in His presence.